Welcome to episode 333 with my guest, therapist Katie Vernoy. Uh, support for today's episode comes from the Scott Allen Turner Show. Scott's the financial rock star who went from a money moron at age 22 to a self-made success 13 years later by using the same ideas that he shares on his show. He'll help you get out of debt faster, save more money, and move towards financial independence by improving your financial intelligence. You can get his best-selling book on audiobook for free by visiting visiting scottallenturner.com slash happy. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. I... Uh, I'm a jackass. I forgot to tell you guys I got my jackass license. Uh, it finally came through. Uh, there's so much red tape in becoming a licensed uh, jackass. Um, you know, I just felt like it was time to uh, to move up because I had just... Um, I just felt like I had been a fuck stick for long enough. And why not just go to jackass school just for you know, one semester and see if I can't get that license. And uh, it looks like it's going to come through. <laughs> this, uh, this is a an awfulsome, awfulsome moment that I want to uh, read to you guys. Uh, this is filled out by a, a woman who calls herself, uh, my stripper name is Fluoxetine, uh, formerly Celexa. And she writes, uh, it's about an hour after I filled out your I shouldn't feel this way survey, wondering what good I'm doing and whether it's worth all this trouble to keep myself alive. Just now, out of the blue, a friend asked to play a stupid iPhone game with me. Beer pong played over text message. Little games like this always cheer me up and I couldn't stop laughing because it meant that someone was thinking of me and wanted to say hi. It's always the dumbest shit that keeps me alive. I love that. I love that. Um, we have a, for those of you that didn't know, uh, Herbert uh, passed away about, uh, I guess it'd be about 10 days ago, the 15th, he passed away. Um, and so now we have a little shrine. We got his ashes back, and um, it's. It's so adorable, and it's also so so kind of heartbreaking. I had never read that poem, uh, Rainbow Bridge. Apparently, everybody in the universe had heard of it uh, except me. And somebody said, read it. You will cry. And, um, oh, it's so it's so beautiful. If you've never read that that poem, I think you got to be a dog or animal lover to, to really be moved by it, though. I think people that aren't animal lovers would just be like, oh, Jesus. That's a little... That's a little saccharine, but um, I'm back in uh, I'm back in Marshmallow Land. I bought three jars of uh, Jet Puff, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, marshmallow cream. I was in the grocery store and I was like, I'm not gonna buy it. I'm not gonna buy any Ben and Jerry's. And it was just like somebody. Just like a robot was controlling me, it just turned me down the freezer aisle, and then uh, next thing I know, I'm like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get one jar of the uh, the marshmallow cream." Yeah, I might as well have two because you know I might eat that first one. I might as well get three because 
three fit perfectly on the shelf. And um, that's all right. You know, progress, not perfection. I uh, Obviously, I'm, I'm dealing with some kind of feelings that I don't want to feel. But how do you know the difference between enjoying something and something being a just a bad coping tool? Um, for me, I think it might be because I eat it standing over the stove uh, like an animal. And it's a, right before I'm about to go to bed. Um, but I don't know. I discovered the Ben and Jerry, uh, their slices. It's, oh, fuck you, Ben and Jerry. I actually met, I don't know if it was Ben or Jerry, but it was when they were just first going national with their, their ice cream. This is how, this is how old I am. I want to say it was like 1980, it was the early 80s, and I was on break from lunch in downtown Chicago, and uh, and I, I was a college student, and I had a summer job working downtown, and I remember going out for my lunch, and there was this ice cream truck, and it said Ben and Jerry's, and they were giving out free samples, and this guy handed me a sample out of the truck, and... I looked at him, and then I looked at their picture on the truck, and I was like, you're one of those guys, right? And he goes, yeah, that's my <laughs> that's my brush with fame. I'm trying to impress you through ice cream stories. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to do what I've learned in support groups, which is when I'm reaching for old coping skills, coping tools, Try to ask myself, what is it that I'm feeling that might be uncomfortable? And it's hard because I don't, I rarely get angry. The only times I really get angry is is when um, I'm playing hockey and it's, and for the most part, I don't even get angry there anymore. Uh, when Herbert died, that's about um, the only time I've cried Um you know, it, how do I explain this? I've cried about my divorce, and I've cried about Herbert, but obviously those are make sense to cry about those things, but I don't cry that much. No, I do cry about shit. Oh, I'm so wanting to rewind this right now. My point being, the emotions that I think I deal with more than anger and sadness is emptiness and numbness, not feeling something. Somebody mentioned that in my support group tonight, and I was like, oh my God, yes, that's it. And it's so hard to put your finger on those because in many ways, they're both the absence of something. And so you can easily call it boredom, but um, I don't know. I'll talk to my therapist about it. Speaking of my therapist, I love betterhelp.com. If you guys are interested in uh, checking out online therapy, I highly recommend it. I've been uh, working with my therapist there, Donna, for six months, nine months, something like that. And um, I love it. 
I love it. So uh, if you want to experience a free week of online counseling to see if it's right for you, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. We'll put a link on the uh, show notes for this episode. Fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a uh, betterhelp.com counselor, and then uh, you can see if it's right for you. And uh, you need to be over 18. I want to read an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm so codependent that my failure to come up with a good nickname will upset you. It has upset me greatly, which is why I'm not going to read your awful moment. How cruel would that be? I think he'd get over it, Paul. Uh, he writes, uh, while she's getting ready for a barbecue, I just overheard my sister Tell my nephew that she doesn't want him to spend too much time on the computer since it could make him lazy. I think that's a veiled reference to me since I'm always on my laptop. Maybe I should tell her that I don't have a single game installed and that almost every free moment I have has been spent looking for a meaningful job that doesn't either treat me like shit and, oh yeah, researching and working to create a project proposal to organizations such as the United Nations and the Peace Corps to address the issue of mental health with refugees and deported individuals around the world. All of that is under a haze of depression and anxiety, which just makes me want to go and hide under a rock. Tired? Yes. Exhausted? Absolutely. Lazy? Fuck off. I hope she enjoys tossing a frisbee around at the lake while I'm working on an action plan to help empower vulnerable people. But I won't tell her all that because somehow fighting governments and bureaucracies to make the world a better place is easier than correcting a misunderstanding in my own family. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with Katie Vernoy, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. I met her at a mental health event, and uh, we exchange information, and I'm so glad that uh, you are willing to come on the podcast and try to answer some, some listener questions. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Your two areas that, that uh, of expertise, or certainly that you um, like to deal with in, in clients, are the adult repercussions of um, being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse mm -hmm. and how people who are in the helping either profession or doing it a lot in their daily lives can keep from burning out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here, let's do this one. Are there any symptoms regarding burnout? I experienced it as a recruiter only because the people described their stories to me. I think... Burnout can happen in a lot of different ways. 
sometimes burnout can be from doing more than than you really can. So you work really hard all the time. You don't have appropriate self-care. There's times when you're working for someone that maybe you don't respect or who doesn't respect you. And so the work can feel really hard, even if it's something that you're passionate about, like recruiting or a helping profession of some sort. And so what can show up is that Sunday dread of Monday, when you work a Monday through Friday job, it can be really not having much energy or it can it can actually really look like depression at times where there's just not a lot of energy. There's not a lot of positivity. Um, there's a lot of complaining that can happen and really not enjoying your work anymore. And sometimes it's, you know, it could be that you just never enjoyed your work and maybe you need to look at a different one. But I think a lot of times the symptoms can be physical. You feel run down, you get sick a lot. It can be emotional. You don't care about your work. Even if you've really cared about your work, you look forward to cancellations or kind of snow days, so to speak, mm. you know, oh, it's so great. You know, the electric, you know, the, the electrical system went out. We, we had to go home, you know, super excited to not work versus oh God, to work. I got hit by a car i don't have to go to the meeting oh and i there was actually people that we would talk this because part of it is i became really burned out when i was working in community mental health and the two of us would talk about well what would actually get us out of work for long enough like we were concerned that breaking a leg wouldn't be sufficient (laughs) (laughs) because then we would still we would just get a cast and then have to go to work and be in pain so we're trying to figure out what could actually get us sufficient amount of uh, time off so that we could rest because there's just too much work i would say that's a good sign oh yeah it's a great sign of burnout for sure um, any other, uh, signs? Um, I think I'm listing them. I would have to, you know, kind of think through, but I think really if someone is feeling like they hate their job, they're exhausted, they're, they're unhappy, even when they're not working, they just don't feel good all the time. And I think really when you start getting really sick and fantasizing about sick days and time away and all of that, I think that's really critical for me. When I figured out that I was burnt out is I was in a job that was no real, no longer really fitting for me. And I was looking for new jobs and I would be exhausted by the end of the job description of the jobs I was looking for. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can't do this work right now. Wow. I just can't even imagine it. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it can it can be pretty intense and i think you can usually tell that you're burnt out but like that kind of when you're on your way i think that part can be really hard to figure out because you're like well i just next week will be better or you know those kinds of things it's wanting to kind of keep imagining that it's going to get better and not realizing wait a second you know it's not getting better and i still feel crappy and i don't like what i'm doing and i would imagine that people who have addictions, those addictions flare up. Oh, absolutely. I think it can be something where you go home and, you know, on a good day when you're not feeling completely drained and exhausted and that, you know, the headache behind your eyes and your head feeling like it's going to explode. You know, on a normal day when you're feeling good, it's like, okay, great, I'm going to go work out and I'm going to do those things. And when you've got that, the just the ready the stress and the ready to give up i mean it's easy to turn to you know kind of old coping mechanisms and that can be i need a drink i need something else i you know i don't want to go in tomorrow and i've got an excuse you know so it can it can definitely i think addictions and and coping behaviors that maybe even you're trying to unhealthy coping behaviors that you're trying to change can really be hard Mm -hmm. to resist 
would would you also say that um any activity that in moderation would be a nice way to take a break from your life suddenly becoming compulsive mm-hmm. um you know for instance like one of the things i i know i did when i didn't want to deal with issues in my life is i would get on the internet and i would look at parcels of land in the pacific northwest mm. knowing i probably couldn't afford any of them and wouldn't go through all of it to to get it but positioning myself imagining myself getting this and i would spend hours just comparing and going mm-hmm. oh yeah you could put a cabin here and it wasn't you know half hour this is this was hours of doing this night after night after night and i couldn't see at the time that i was really just not dealing yeah i think that that any way that you escape whether it's for me it's reading like i could read hours and hours and hours and the same books over and over again just you know continuing to read it sounds like for you it was finding the the place that you were going to build the cabin and run off to and and be off the grid and and all of those things i think when you're really looking to escape from your life anything that you're doing that really completely takes you away for long periods of time is something to look at you know is that is this really helpful you know if you were truly looking and and comparing and going to buy a parcel of land and you were comparing prices for lumber and and Mm. construction companies and all those things and it was actually a project that you were doing great but if it's i'm going to live in this fantasy because my life isn't what i want it to be then it can it takes time away from you being able to productively create the life that you want and I just realized you said, let's start with the CSA questions first. And I went right into a uh, uh, question about burnout. It's really hard to d- divide them up in some ways, yeah. because I think that there's a lot of the same things that show up. And uh, the order I got them in from the listeners, they're all mixed in together. So given my horrible memory, I will probably bounce back and forth. That's uh, perfectly fine. As we go through these. Um, somebody wrote... And I assume this is about uh, CSA, childhood sexual abuse. How to get rid of the anger. I dream of traveling the country, killing sex offenders. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it. Frown. (laughs) Um, I think that's a tough one. It it, it probably depends where the anger is coming from. Um, For folks who are generally kind of angry with the world it's not related to csa where there's there's anger that's you know whether it's irritation it's irritability that's burnout you know that type of of anger you can get rid of by self-care and 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 improving your mood when the anger is directed because of an experience you've had or an experience of someone that you care about where they've had a, a an abuser in their life that's whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse or even emotional abuse i think when you've had that experience and you see the impacts on your life, on the life of the person that you care about, it can be really easy to be extremely angry with everyone who identifies or is could be identified as an abuser or a predator, a perpetrator. And I think for me, because obviously I've heard a lot of stories and there's parts part of me that wants to go around and crusade and do the same thing. Not that I would frowny face, but mm. I, I, I get that anger because I can see these amazing, mostly women, but men and women who I've worked with who have these amazing beautiful stories about you know how they've been resilient all those things but the fact that they had to be resilient pisses me off 
You know, it certainly uncovered some strengths. It, it, you know, we can talk about how people can find themselves and their, their core gifts when they, they have to face these really horrible things. But that doesn't change the fact that I don't want them to have happened. Right. And the people who have perpetrated these things are people who I'm angry with. And so for me, especially my first job was working with kids who had been removed from their homes because of this type of abuse. And I thought, there is no way I'm ever going to be able to work with perpetrators. And I really don't. But I, I, I've been able to move a little bit more towards being able to forgive. Not all the way to forgiveness in some situations, but more to the, to the place where I can start kind of seeing, you know, how I can let go of the anger. And that I realize that, by and large, these are folks who have had the same thing happen to them. They've had, they had some sort of sexual abuse or some sort of abuse perpetrated against them. Or they had some really confusing boundaries growing up. There may be, there may be other things that have happened to them where that was what they turned to. You know, I, I think that there's different beliefs about are people evil and all of those things. I have trouble saying that people are evil. I believe that there's been some pretty gnarly things that have happened to them where something that doesn't seem okay to me seems okay to them. And I think that for me, that's kind of, I try to understand how they may have come to that place where that seemed like an option. I do. I do too. Um, And I have a lot of strong opinions on forgiveness because I I believe that telling somebody they should, they should try to forgive. uh, I want to slap the person that said that. I -hmm. believe forgiveness uh, is just uh, something that if it comes as a byproduct of the processing and the healing fantastic Mm -hmm. but it's an emotional byproduct to me Mm -hmm. not an intellectual pursuit um i think that's a really good point because i've got some clients who are beating themselves up because they can't forgive and i talk to them about how it would be normal that they would have difficulty forgiving because there's some pretty awful things that have gone down and i think there's a lot there's a lot of different religions or faiths or or cultures that forgiveness is the end all piece and i think that there is a really beautiful thing that when you have that emotional byproduct that you can forgive but to not forgive yourself because you're having difficulty forgiving your perpetrator doesn't help you now and how do you process the anger unless you've gotten in touch with it at, at some point absolutely i had to process the anger i i had at my mom i i forgive my mom i don't hate her uh Mm -hmm. i can't have a relationship with her for other reasons but um i understand that she's a uh you know somebody that she is the way that she is i don't condone Mm -hmm. what she did to me but um i i don't see her as a malicious um person um and so it it that's how that's how I got to the place of forgiveness. And yeah. sometimes I would backslide, and all of a sudden I'd feel a wave, feel a wave of of anger again. But that's my personal experience uh, with it. And and I know that the more that I dove into my support groups, um, the easier it was for me to see not only her but just anybody that causes me anger in my daily life people i don't even meet just public figures it made it easier for me to um have acceptance 
not approval, but acceptance that that is just the way it is and I can't mm-hmm. change it. But what I can do is speak about it, protect myself, and try to help those who have experienced it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because when you talk about acceptance, I think I think too many people equate acceptance and approval. If I accept that that's how they are, then I'm approving of it. And I said, well, no, I don't think that's actually true. I always, I always jump to Hitler because Hitler such, has done such horrible, evil things, right? I've not heard of him. Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, well, do we forgive Hitler? You know, if we think about what Hitler did to society and we think about what a per- perpetrator has done to a, a child survivor, you know, a person who, ch- who survived sexual abuse. There's some huge, huge atrocities that have been committed by these perpetrators. And yes, it may have been one person to one person versus one person to a ton. But I think it's it's that the the impact on the individual who experienced the abuse can be as much of an atrocity as that. Yes. And I think people understand, like, well, of course not. Why would we forgive Hitler? But people think, well, you should forgive your mom or you should forgive your dad or you should forgive your whatever. It's like, well, I get that. And I think that if you can get to that place where you can understand that maybe they were doing the best they could, maybe maybe there's something that was going on for them that this is how it showed up. Maybe this is just how they are and I can't expect something different. Then you can potentially go to forgiveness. It wasn't necessarily malicious. It wasn't necessarily something that was designed to hurt me, but it did. It did. Uh, and and I think once you practice acceptance for the things that you don't have control over, mm-hmm. it allows you to be much more efficient in your life because you then focus your energies on what you can either influence or control and stop living in a state of insanity of wishing that things were different. Yeah, I think a lot of anger comes from wishing that people could be different or things had been different. I think with folks who are still have some sort of relationship with a perpetrator of sorts, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual abuse, it's always wishing that they could be different, wishing that they could apologize. And I'm not saying that some people don't change and there are those those interactions, but the anger comes from, I can't believe she's still doing this. I can't believe she's still this way. It's like, well, she's always been this way. And your expectation that she could be different is setting you up for disappointment over and over and over again, and it gets you really upset. And so I think being able to accept this is how she is, this is how this person behaves, this is what I can expect from this person. And and, and we're talking about situations where it is now an adult that has Mm -hmm. autonomy over their lives as opposed to a child who has to live there and is afraid to contact the authorities or talk to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole different set of things to talk about with, with minors, of yeah. course. Um, I had some other point to uh, to tag onto that, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, oh, yeah, um, expecting somebody, being resentful at, at somebody who you want to change, it, it, you know, and then you experiencing all these negative emotions. I heard somebody say one time, resentment is where you take the poison and expect the other person to die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something where, you know, there's the, there's a resentment piece, but there's also this kind of ongoing disappointment and kind of re-experiencing this hurt. Each time they behave the same way, it's another, it's kind of the death by a million paper cuts. It's like, well, 
you've already had all the paper cut step away from the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, this person is not going to behave differently unless they show that they can. And so don't expect that they're going to behave differently because each time you put yourself back into that situation where they're behaving the same way, you're getting disappointed, you're getting hurt, you're getting all of those messages that oftentimes are pretty negative reinforced. How different do you think society would be if the average person had a great grasp on um, understanding boundaries and consequences? Oh my gosh. (laughs) It would be amazing. I feel like that would be the greatest educational tool our society could have. I think it's I think it's in the top 10 for sure yeah. because I think I think being able to be mindful as well and thinking through I guess it's boundaries and consequences too but being able to understand the control that you can have over your responses to things I think that would also be really really helpful because I think a lot of folks are are kind of dive into this kind of hurricane of emotions and don't recognize that there there are, there's some point sometimes that you can choose not to dive into the hurricane. Yeah. Um, let's see, what's the next question on this topic? How can adult survivors better deal with their children growing up, quote, normal? I find myself restricting my kids out of fear, things like sleepovers and walking to a friend's house. How do I know when I'm being too overprotective? What a great question. Oh, it's a great question. And it's a tough one. I don't know that there's a lot of right answers. Um, there's some wrong answers. I think completely shielding your children from the world sets them up to not be able to make decisions. And so I think oftentimes what I've seen is that typically moms, because I mostly work with women, but I think parents who have had childhood sexual abuse or even, you know, kind of physical or emotional abuse that really led them kind of to this place of not, not trusting the world and not trusting too many people. I think they want to shield their children from that. And so they they become overprotective in a way that doesn't teach their children kind of the general life lessons. How do I make a decision? How do I know if something's safe? How do I do those things? And so I think... How do I deal with failure? How, how do, do I, I deal, deal with, with failure? Hurt? How do I deal with hurt? All of those Humiliation. things. Humiliation. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think... I think not being able to self-soothe and not being able to take care of themselves is one piece, but not being able to identify potential red flags, not being able to make good choices. I think those are things that I think a lot of parents don't think about. I've had, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, I'll get second generation into uh, my office because mom had some sort of childhood abuse, some sort of something that led them on this path where they wanted to be really protective of the kid. And the kid ends up going into a car with somebody that um, shouldn't have gone into not not being able not seeing the, the 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 signs that this really nice guy that's saying come over here in the alleyway is not somebody you should spend time with and so when especially i think there's that kind of the societal helicopter parent thing that happens and then if you add to that your own history of childhood sexual abuse then it's like i want to i want to i want to shield them from the everything but then once they have any kind of autonomy whether it's rebelling in high school or going off to college they're sitting docks and it's it's awful i mean I, you know it's it's so it it actually winds up backfiring oh completely completely because they haven't had a chance to use these 
tools? Or? Yeah, no, they, they haven't been able to use the tools. They've not had to make the decisions in the lower risk situations. So if I'm at a sleepover and my mom has talked to me about what's okay, what's good and bad touch, what's okay and what's not okay, how do I behave following the morals and values of my family? And something weird happens and it's, you know, it's some girls and, and there's a babysitter and it's mom and it's, you know, it's pretty low risk and it's parents that the mom knows. If I don't get if if the kid doesn't get to do that and then come back and say, Mom, there was something weird and I'm not sure and and you know, they were saying we should put, you know, Susie's hand in a glass of water and it was supposed to make her pee and I felt uncomfortable, it felt like it crossed a boundary. Like if you don't have those conversations mm-hmm. then there's not the many conversation the the tiny little conversations about boundaries, about consequences, until oh mom, um I went to I went to a party and somebody roofied me and I don't remember what happened. And I've heard that a lot from kids from, from overprotective parents. And so I think it's getting a mindset of, I know that this is going to be extremely painful to me and we can't control what happens. I can't promise that you give your kid every tool in the book that they are going to be safe because not everybody's safe, you know? There's things we can't control. But if your kid knows what to look for, knows how to reach you, knows what's kind of support, when to get support, what's okay and what's not okay, when if your kid has those tools, has had some chance to test them out when they're young enough that they're still going to seek you out for support and guidance, they're going to be lost. So it's it's kind of a mindset thing. It's really like, how do you set your kid up? And recognizing, I, I had one uh, client who um, was open with her daughter and was like, I'm going to be uncomfortable with this. And so I'm going to need you to check in more. I want you to be able to do these things, but I'm going to need you to check in more. And and you think that's okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I think if you have to check in every two seconds and you have to have the GPS on. And right. like, I mean, if, if it's something where, where, it, where it, but if it's like, hey, you know, if you're when you're going from one place to the next, just send me shoot me a quick text. You know? Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I am both a child incest survivor and a massage therapist. Uh, so how do us empaths avoid being taken advantage of at work? We want to help people, but then others abuse our good helping nature. I love this question. It is basically why I do what I do. So let me dig into this one a little bit. Um, I call it sacrificial helping syndrome, or uh, what's the right, what's the way I've described it? Misguided generosity, hmm. especially as an empath, as a as a healer, as a person who is very sensitive to all the different possibilities when you've had childhood trauma, your fight or flight response is more easily triggered. You're going to notice more of the potential dangers that other folks might not notice because of that kind of heightened awareness. Sometimes it, your heightened awareness is more about triggers than it is about real dangers. And so you can, you know, want to make sure that you're testing that out. But but in everyday life, you're just more aware, right? You're just more aware. You're more on because... You, you know that there's real dangers out there. And then if you're also working to heal and help people, you're going to want to be there for them and, and have a heart for them because there's a ca- connection and attachment to, I want to, I want to be a helper. I you know, and some of it I think goes back to, I wish somebody would have helped me in a different way, but then there's a lot of different reasons. So I won't dig into that too much, but 
But I think what often happens is there's this idea that my worth is through my ability to help. And I think a lot of people take advantage of that. I, I know that for myself as a therapist, as a coach, you know, all the things that I do, there's times when I'll go way above and beyond and I'll have a lot of folks who want more and more from me and I have to figure out how to set boundaries because if I don't, then I'm not going to be able to help anybody. How often do you find people who have difficulty regulating their helping were raised in environments where they were discouraged or shamed for expressing needs? That's a really good question. I don't know that I've explored it in that way exactly, but if I think about it... Because I think a lot of people that become the can't say no mm -hmm. to being the savior, the whatever, mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's clearly a way yeah. to, to not feel some type of shame for wanting to have a break. Yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely something there. I'm thinking about it, and, and, and that does line up a lot. I'm just kind of thinking through yeah. kind of the different conversations I've had. I think that there's, in my experience, it's that whether it's shame or just um, kind of not being allowed. So there's not necessarily completely shame involved, but it's not ever really not encouraged, not encouraged to express to. yourself yeah. or, 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 or shown how to ask for needs appropriately or those kinds of things. And, and kind of stepping into some sort of a caregiver role, whether it's taking care of parents because parents were incapacitated, incapacitated in some way, um, taking care of younger siblings, taking care of older siblings, sometimes just depending on the roles in the family. Um, when there's when there's a requirement to care for others as the role in your family, whether it's you're shamed if you have any needs or your value is from helping, I think there's a natural transition into being a helper and a, and a huge, huge tendency to have a difficulty to say no. And I think oftentimes when people say no or try to say no or consider saying no, what comes up is if I say no, they won't like me. If I say no, then I have no value. If I say no, it's too hard. There's, there's potentially conflict. There's potentially pushback. And there's also this idea that I want to help. So I need to say yes. I need to, you know, I want to be a value. And, and, and even helping is how I connect with others because I can't just sit here and be. I have to be helping because that's that's what I do. I love to help people. And so I think when I told what I tell people, part of its mindset, it's thinking, okay, if I, I was I was joking with somebody that I'm I'm going to write a book on sacrificial helping. That's I'm thinking about kind of how I would do that because I think so many of us sacrifice our own well-being to help others. But I'm thinking of a chapter and I'm calling it you can only jump on one grenade. Mm -hmm. And it's really if we help person acts for a million hours, person Y comes up and actually really needs our help, there's nothing left to give. And so it's looking at who do I help? Who do I bestow this gift of helping on? Which a lot of people have a hard time seeing that mm -hmm. they've got something of value to offer. But if you can get your head around, I have something very valuable to offer. Who do I choose to give it to? Because I can't give that to everyone. We're like pitchers of water. Like you can only pour out so much before you go back and fill back up. You need to be able to take care of yourself. You need to have downtime. You need to be able to choose what you do. But in each little moment, this person wants something from me. I usually give that help to them. And to say no to them is really uncomfortable. So, And, it, and sometimes you wind up 
pouring energy into a person who just really only wants attention and to have an audience and mm-hmm. does not realize that they they are draining and mm-hmm. being in support groups where sometimes you mentor people um i've gotten pretty good at recognizing um that type of person and and putting the ball back in their court by saying um if we are going to meet for coffee and i'm going to help you with this thing I will I will help you on a week to week basis contingent on you doing the things that I suggest mm-hmm. you do to help you know your 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 personal growth. Yeah, and I think it's requiring something from them and and not doing everything for them. I think that's that's awesome because I think so many people will keep they'll they'll take on the other person's crisis, the other person needs and make them their own. And so they're they're rolling with it and they're doing more for this person and it really isn't helping anybody. It's like the overprotective parent. It's you, like you're, yeah, you're not empowering the person to, to handle their own problems. You're not giving them the tools to be able to manage their own problems and then it's also the relationship is reliant on you continuing to be in this role. And they don't get to see the consequences of um, irresponsible behavior on, on their part. For sure. And, and for- uh, irresponsible behavior and using someone. Yes. Because if you're in the role of helper and you're there and you're, okay, one more time and yeah, yeah, let's do this and sure, I'll come, I'll bring my truck and I'll help you move and yeah, I'll help you find a job and if it, if you're doing that and you're constantly being drained and you're becoming resentful and all these things, you're, you're becoming a less effective helper but you put on the smile, you say, sure, I can but they believe that that's acceptable behavior and they can't develop other relationships with people who aren't as nice as you. Yep, yep. <laughs> and then they think you are you know, a bad person because you haven't taken their fifth call that day. Yes. Yeah. I think it, it creates this dependence. It's really not healthy. Two things that, mm-hmm. that really uh, helped me when I started going to support groups and had to learn how to draw boundaries was you don't have to recall, uh, re- call, return every phone call instantly. Um, and Compassion for other people is great, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. Yes. I, I full-heartedly agree with that. All right. Next question. How about when you hear news and you think about how that will affect the people you're trying to help, how do you not lose your mind? Um, oh, no, this is a help one. I want to find a CSA one. If she considers children younger than the victim capable of being abusers and how to stop feeling like a fraud if you've experienced this as I have. What a great question. And I've read some surveys uh, on this and those Mm -hmm. people struggled with that idea. So let me make sure I'm understanding the question. So this person was older than the person who sexually abused them. So as a minor, as a child, the abuser was younger. Yes. Um, Let me take a second. (laughs) Um, I think with that, there are guidelines and parameters that people have put into place to try to categorize and understand sexual abuse, other adverse childhood experiences. There's actually a great study. I don't know. Have you heard of Vincent Felitti's Adverse Childhood Experiences survey? Mm-hmm. Um, no, but I have his first two albums. <laughs> he 
he was doing a weight loss study and there was a participant or maybe more than one participant who had lost a ton of weight success. And then they checked up six months after the end of the study and she had gained all the weight back and more. And fortunately they actually, they asked the question why, and it was, she had had childhood sexual abuse and what they, they, uncovered was that there were certain adverse childhood experiences that would impact later medical and, and mental health At- attention from the opposite sex potentially right. but like the, even talking about cancer you know okay. like there's there's like it was kaiser permanente that was doing this study and they had all of the all of the uh medical records so they had this adverse childhood experience survey which is 10 questions and it went through were you uh, sexually abused by someone who is four years or more older than you this is why i'm bringing this up (laughs) i'm coming around i promise and so it also had like did your parents get divorced did you have someone in your family commit suicide like there was a lot of adverse childhood experience did somebody go to prison um and the the more of those that you had so, you know, if you had one, you were more likely to have two and, and on and on. But the more that you had, the higher your chances of these, these other consequences, you know, substance abuse, um, depression, depression, anxiety. anxiety, but also inflammatory diseases, cancer, just not feeling good, like a lot of the medical concerns, too. So it really tied that mm. both, you know, these adverse childhood experiences led to mental health, but also medical problems afterwards. So the reason I'm bringing that up is it's a cool study, but I also use the the survey in my group with women who have been survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And I had a woman who was like, the person who abused me was my same age. Do I not count it? I was like, of course you count it. This What that person did, she was hugely impactful. And I think to me, there are ways that we define it that help with the study, that help with whatever. I'm not doing the study. I don't have to say, well, oh, was the person who provided, you know, who, who perpetrated sexual assault on you, was, were they older enough? Or were they older than you? Like, I don't think it matters. It's the Was it unwanted? And did you feel, um, were you Absolutely. have difficulty advocating for yourself yeah. and regret that the situation happened or feel pain about it. And I think what it really boils down to is I think that whether the child was four years older, older, whatever, I think it's that's really lazy shorthand for was there a power differential? Was it unwanted? Well, if it was unwanted and it was a kid who was younger than you that you that you had the power to beat up, you may have done that. But if you did not have the power to to stop it for whatever reason there was a power differential that needs to be respected and one of those power differentials could be that you were raised in a home where you were discouraged from having needs and advocating for yourself and you couldn't find the words absolutely and i think that's the thing that can be really hard is that people can look at it and say well why don't you say something well the kid was littler than you all those things all that's bs total bs and it could be that it was an interesting experience for the first five minutes and then something changed absolutely and and it can go from experimentation beyond pretty fast especially if it becomes not consensual yeah and the the trauma could have happened so quickly and without warning that even if you did Mm want to say something 
you're still traumatized. Absolutely. By it. Absolutely. I think I think the ages don't really matter. I think I think that there are times when, you know, people think it matters, but I think in truth what really really matters is what was the impact on you? How were you able to move forward, you know? And the perpetrator is kind of less important to me than the person I'm talking to. To a separate issue in, in my mind. The, mm-hmm. the one of the worst things people misconstrue is the um the prosecutability of mm. what happened to them, conflating that with as if that should directly equal how much damage they're allowed to feel. Yeah. And that is I think so many people suffer. Because they're like, well, if I took this person to court, I wouldn't win, so I need to get over this. Yeah, I agree. It's not the same thing. No, and 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 it puts a huge wall up in front of yourself to heal because mm-hmm. you're going to feel shame uh, expressing your pain. You're going to be second-guessing yourself. And for me to heal, the first thing I had to do was to stop second-guessing myself long enough to let the tears out. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if anyone has an experience that that they that happened to them that was traumatizing to them, that they felt they had no power, that they that they were feeling um at risk, whether it was, you know, some sort of victimization, you know, a risk of you know, kind of the sexual pieces or risk of losing their life or any of those things, that's a trauma. And so how that came about, who was the perpetrator, it doesn't matter to me. No. Processing the feelings. Processing the feelings. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, understanding that it's hard to be inside someone else's head. And so if somebody's trying to understand what you experienced, and most people want to try to just have it go away. Well, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was this or that. It was it was another kid or it was this. You know, it doesn't matter. And the intent of that other person in terms of healing doesn't matter in the certainly in the beginning mm-hmm. you know it could certainly be in my opinion something that you are curious about mm-hmm. i would love to know what was going through my mom's mind when when mm-hmm. she crossed boundaries i will never know mm-hmm. but if i had waited to get that answer before yeah. i started processing things uh, i'd still be at square one yeah i think that there's a lot of things we can't know And I think being able to fully understand your experience. And I think oftentimes, even just being able to look at it again as an adult, it can really shine some light on it. Because if we only have a child's understanding of it, sometimes there's not fully words for it. There's not really an understanding that it's it's hard to process it if you haven't actually taken a look and talked it through a little bit. I think I really, you know, oftentimes I think there's a lot of really great support groups and those kinds of things. But I obviously am a therapist. I highly recommend talking to a therapist through those traumatic experiences. So you're not re-traumatizing yourself, but rather processing it. And having somebody that can tell you, I see a lot of people, I went to school for this, and your pain is valid. Mm-hmm. Let's let's embark yeah. on uh, you feeling better. I think, yeah, and I think, I think that's a really good point, because I, I've had some clients come to me who have gone to other therapists even, who were visibly shocked or or impacted by the story and i'm not saying that i'm gonna you know <laughs> I, I, that i i don't express my my feelings and 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 have you know a face that that's expressive but i think 
if if you if you don't go to a therapist who specializes in trauma and if you don't go to a therapist who specifically tr- specializes in sexual trauma there are times that therapists don't get it and they may re-traumatize you by minimizing what what happened to by you by minimizing or by kind of experiencing more of your emotions than you're ready to experience. Oh. Oh my goodness. Wow. That oh, how did you survive that? You know, I think it's that, you know, kind of and I'm sure you've seen that with other people if you've told your story and there's somebody that just is so visibly responsive, it it kind of hits your buttons too and, and a therapist isn't supposed to, you know, unsettle you in that way necessarily. I think there's there's tactics to help people get in touch with their feelings, but if you feel like you have to take care of your therapist, that's a problem. Yeah, definitely. And um I think a lot of abusers don't even fully understand what it was mm-hmm. that the reasons why they were doing. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think most of them understand that what they were doing was wrong, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of them don't know why yeah. they feel compelled to do what it is that they're doing. So it, driving yourself crazy, wanting to know a, a mm-hmm. definitive answer, that person might not even know the person that yeah, hurt I, you. Yeah, and I think that's why the perpetrator to me, I think there's some important pieces in trying to understand what you can understand. Those things can be very helpful. But I've had folks who wanted to confront their perpetrator. And if that's part of the process, that's fine. But the expectations have to be reasonable. The person may understand, know that they, what they did is wrong and feel a lot of remorse and ha- are able to have that conversation, or they may be completely without remorse. And it could be a really, really difficult situation. So I think it's, it's being able to understand from your own perspective, what's happened, how you're going to move forward from it. And, and it's less important about the perpetrator, but everybody's going to ask that, why would they do this? Why did they do this? Why would that be okay? And I think some of it is, is coming to a conclusion that, you know, people do things that hurt other people. Because they're in pain. Hurt people hurt people. Right? Yep. Isn't that how the saying goes? I think so. Um, let's see what the next one is. Any suggestions for good coping mechanisms uh, would be appreciated in both cases, both for a person feeling burnout and for somebody who is an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Absolutely. Coping is great. Um, I think the the best thing that I can offer is that not every coping strategy is going to work for every person. Mm-hmm. And not every coping strategy is going to work the same for every situation. And so it's figuring out when you're feeling down, what are the what are the coping strategies that are going to raise your energy level that are going to bring you up? When you're feeling stressed out or angry, what are the what are the things that'll calm you down? If you're feeling da- down and start listening to Yanni, that's just not helpful. <laughs> Unless you like like Yanni's really your jam. But it, the the, yeah. the 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 even if you're at the Acropolis, <laughs> I think it's it's something where being able to identify: Do I need to upregulate or do I need to downregulate? You know, do I need to get more energy or do I need to calm down? Um, and and incorporating coping strategies that match with that. So that's one thing. I think the other thing I like to call proactive coping. Now it's technically self-care, but I actually like to call it proactive coping because I think especially when you know you're going to walk into a situation that's triggering to you or to into a situation that's stressful to you, you can go in and say, oh, this is going to piss me off. I'm going to be so stressed out. There's this and that. Ugh. You're preparing to be upset. 
Mm-hmm. You're preparing to be stressed out. You're be preparing to be disappointed. Whereas if you go in and say, okay, I'm going to a family event. I know that people are going to be asking me questions that are really uncomfortable to me. There's going to be people who I've got some, some history with, some drama with. So I'm going to proactively cope. I'm going to make sure that I have a good night's sleep. I'm going to drink my cup of chamomile tea before I take off. I'm going to wear my outfit that makes me feel really great. And I'm going to walk in and I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to keep breathing the whole time as I'm walking in. So it's, it's setting yourself up saying, I know it's going to be tough, but I'm going to do something different so that I, I've got all of my tools in my toolbox ready to handle the situation. So you're saying um, snapping and then peeling out of the parking lot would not be the best <laughs> coping tool? <laughs> saying fuck you all as you, as you roll the window down? <laughs> I think that can be good coping in some situations. Um, can I throw a couple in that have helped me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you can afford it, stay at a hotel. If the people mm-hmm. that you're staying with are triggering to you, and if they push you on it, just say, please respect the fact that I I need my space. I just sometimes need time to be away from you or away from people, but it's not, it has nothing to do with you. Don't take it as a, you know, as a, as a slight to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're able to set up the boundaries up front and give yourself some space, I mean, that's absolutely proactive coping. I think... Reactive coping in that situation is having your list of hotels that you're going to stay at if it feels Mm. that you can't stay at the house. Uh, Another one um, is talk to a couple of close friends before you go to it. Let them know you're going to be going to this thing and say, if you can, um, are you available for me to call you if I get totally stressed out in the middle of of something. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think activating your support system is critical. You can have them, can you text me at this time? So I can remember to take a breath, I can have an excuse to to take a call, it can give me an out, you can can I talk to you afterwards so I can process it with you? Can you be available for that? I think being able to activate your healthy support system, whatever you're walking into, mm-hmm. whether it's a family event or not, I think is so key, especially mm-hmm. for folks who that's the way that they process things is with other people. The other two things that help me is I remind myself over and over again that I can't change people. Mm-hmm. And I picture people that trigger me as little children and adults' bodies. And oh, it, beautiful. I love it. <laughs> just make, I take it less personally because mm-hmm. then I go, oh, they don't know. They just don't know or they haven't learned. Yes. They haven't learned yet. Yeah. You can say, oh, that's adorable. <laughs> right. What an adorable little tantrum <laughs> yeah. they're having. I think, and I always remind people, use the bathroom. That's a good one. If If someone's bothering you, go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Washing your hands with nice cold water can help physiologically calm you down getting away can calm you down uh, pretending you know. that you have a phone call coming in to say excuse me i gotta take this mm-hmm. and having a nice long fake conversation <laughs> to make it convincing even turn it into an argument and throw your phone against the wall nobody will ever <laughs> second guess that that was a fake conversation commit to it that's what i'm saying full commit commitment to it. full commitment i like it uh teachers of children with trauma advice question mark 
Okay. Teachers of children with who have trauma. I think it can be hard to identify if a child has had trauma. If, if you know as a teacher that one of your, one of the children in the classroom has had trauma or several of the children in the classroom have had trauma, I think it's recognizing that there are going to be things that don't necessarily make sense that are triggers. So standing, standing over the child, potentially putting, um, your hand on their neck, um, or touching their shoulders or whatever, using a tone of voice. There can be things that are triggers that can be like, oh, the child's being awful again and they're acting out and all those things. But I think understanding that the child's acting out behavior could be them not being able to self-regulate and coming up against triggers that maybe you aren't recognizing. It could be that there's another kid in the class who who is either someone that can be a kind of a self-soothing partner or who is triggering them. And so it's identifying what are the types of things that are actually triggering them and not assuming that they're acting out, but that they're they're having an emotional dysregulation because of something that's going on. Now, it could be they're bored or it could be that they just don't like this lesson or they are struggling. So it could be kind of the typical stuff. But if there's also trauma, I think being able to identify what are the triggering things? What are the things that help calm them down? Are there people, you know, even even being open to having some different options like they can go take a walk outside. They can go to the nurse's office if they're really triggered so that they can calm down because trying to to have some quick intervention within the classroom where you can, you know, if you've got a good relationship, you can kind of do that. Okay, you know, take a moment. I'm going to walk away. Draw or, you know, whatever their coping is that can work. But if but if it doesn't work, if they're so triggered, they're so emotionally dysregulated that they that they're going to disrupt the class and they're going to they're going to continue to escalate with you giving them the 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 space or the opportunity to go somewhere else to calm down can be really really helpful whether it's a counselor who they have a good relationship with whether it's just sitting in the nurse's office getting a drink of water you know whatever it is and obviously it's going to be different at different schools what's available but it's recognizing that the dysregulation isn't because they're mad at you it's because they're triggered uh would it be recommended to ever um, pull that kid aside out, you know, maybe out into the hallway and, and say to the kid, you know, what's, what's going on? Talk to me. Is, is, is that something that, that would work? I don't I know. I'm not can. a teacher. But. Yeah, I think it can. I think that, yeah, I guess that's kind of part of the assumption is that there's been those conversations. I've seen a lot of after school specials. <laughs> I think, I think that for kids who are struggling, I think oftentimes there's, there's official processes that happen, you know, whether it's an individual education plan or a, a behavioral plan or something of some sort where there's been some exploration. I think finding out what's going on, if there is a relationship with the kid, being able to say, hey, what's going on and, and exploring it, I think can be great. I think if there's not a relationship, making someone talk about why they're triggered can also be triggering. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to you. I don't trust you. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust adults who look like you. I mean, there's... So then would it be better to say, I just want you to know that I'm a safe person to talk to and if you ever want to talk to me about anything um, I'm I'm here for you yeah no I think I think that that's showing a willingness and availability to be to talk mm -hmm. to you know I think 
I think saying, hey, what's going on? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Well, if you ever do, I'm here. Like, I think you can do that. Mm-hmm. I think if it's what's going on, you need to let me know what's going on. I mean, obviously, yeah. there's very different tenors to those two different conversations. And I think the people that I've that I've felt were really allies in the schools when I was working with children and, and working with therapists who were going into the schools is folks who were open to those conversations, who were open to learning about how do I work with these kids? I mm-hmm. want to keep this kid in my class. They're, they've got the, the educational you know, they're developmentally at the right spot. They've got the the intelligence to do the work. They're just acting out. And I think it's because of this, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think, and I think also finding your allies in therapists and school-based counselors Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things, because I think they have the knowledge to be able to help you decipher what's going on with the kid's behavior. Uh, And one of the reasons why I ask is I've read more than a few surveys where somebody shared uh, a moment in childhood where a teacher was the first person that they opened up to. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. it changed their life for the better. I also imagine that there are some teachers out there that are predators, and that's you know, one of the ways that they get to kids is they pretend to be their extra close special friend mm-hmm. yeah, because I mean- they, they recognize that that kid is troubled and shut down. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. I think that figuring out how how to support kids and figuring out who are the actual safe adults and what's okay and what's not okay. And I think opening up communication is very critical because yeah, I've definitely had a lot of folks where the first person they told was maybe it was a teacher or a tutor or, you know, somebody that they, that was not their parents because their parents maybe were involved or their parents were not involved at all. And it was uncle Joe, you know, like, it's, you know, if the parents weren't engaged, then sometimes it was the school that was, was helpful and then there was other times when the school was doing abuse of their own so if maybe if it wasn't sexual it was physical so yeah i think it's who's safe let's let's help kids figure that out <laughs> um this one is about burnout regarding burnout working in the veterinary field and dealing with oh, euthanasia death uh necropis necropsies necropsies I, I don't know but it'd be a great name for a band um, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine whenever I'm in the vet, I always think, how do these people deal with seeing cute little animals in pain or being put to sleep every fucking day? Yeah. Yeah. I think with, with a lot of the helping professions, um, we see people, animals at their worst. We see people in pain. We see people or animals dying. We see a lot of the things that I think society doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with. Um, a lot of people have asked me when my therapist work, like, how can you hear these stories all the time and still be okay? And I think it's, it's, there's obviously people have different things that they are, are dealing with and, and different things that are, kind of manageable for them. But the way that I manage it and the way that I, I've talked to other helpers and how they to manage it is really to understand that you don't want to completely disconnect from your emotions because I think that's what happened when I first got into this work. Mm-hmm. I was reading all these stories because I was working in a, in a group home for kids who had been removed from their home because of sexual abuse and physical abuse and that kind of stuff. It was well, long. You and, jumped right in, huh? I did. <laughs> and so for me, like I would go home and I'd be crying and I'd be so upset. And then at a certain point, especially once the kids started biting me and beating me up and, and peeing on me and all that good stuff. Um, 
I kind of got this really thick skin. And I think that could that can lead to really, really bad burnout, too, is just not being in touch with your feelings at all. I went to this movie and all the people were crying and it was about, you know, a kid um, whose mom was in this, the mom was in jail, but had, there was a lot of, you know, abuse. And I was just like, I don't know that that's realistic. Huh? Everybody's really upset about this. This does not seem okay. (laughs) I have no emotions whatsoever. And so I, I don't recommend that because I think that's, that stunts your own emotional expression and those kinds of things. So we still have to be in touch with our emotions and recognize that we're facing something that's truly sad. This is something that's sad and it's okay if there are times when you need to cry. There's okay. It's okay. And I think with therapists especially, it's like, well, I'm supposed to be so professional and I can't do this. And and I don't necessarily cry with my clients very much, but I certainly am able to hold the space and then sometimes afterwards I'll cry. I'll be like, wow, that was, that was really intense. Just imagining this person who I care about, who's sitting in the room with me is having had all these things that happen. And how do I, how do I not cry about that? How do I not have an emotion about it? I have to. I could tell you uh, seeing a tear roll down a therapist's face when you're uh, talking about stuff is, is very, very validating. Absolutely, because we're in we're in it together. You know. We're experiencing now. If the if the therapist starts crying uncontrollably, that that's would have a different made me thing. uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden, then you have to take care of the therapist again. So, so I think when it's it's something that you know, there's euthanasia, there's there's animals who are very sick, there's all of those things. I think it's recognizing that this is tough stuff. It may be less tough for you because you see it all the time. You're, you know, you're in the, in the, in a professional role. So there's a little bit more professional armor. It's not necessarily your pet. So there's, there's a different relationship. So there's, there's ways to, to understand, you know, kind of where do my emotions fit in here a little bit, but I think it's really about self care. I mean, it always circles back to self care, which is how do you feel your own emotions? Don't take on the emotions of the people around you. Because I think that's really what can become overwhelming. If you're crying and I'm, my face is sad and I'm all those things, my body is, is getting kind of a transfer of your emotions, whether I'm sad or not, because I can be present and I can see your sadness. I can honor your sadness and not feel sadness. But if my face is, and I'm, my body starts registering, this is sadness. You're sad. And, and then so it's the way you take it in Mm -hmm. that. That so having a consciousness and awareness of presence as the situation mm-hmm. is in front of you, yeah, um, is how you do it. Because I was just thinking to myself, how do you, how do you have any control over what you're feeling when you're presented with, with something? Well, I think part of it is is being able to ground yourself in, especially for me with working with you know childhood sexual abuse. I'm safe, recognizing I'm in this room. I'm safe. What this person is talking about is sad, is is hard. There's a lot that we have to unpack here. I, I start looking at what what is my role here? How do I take care of this role? But for me, I consciously don't think how would I, how would I deal with that? Because no, it's not about it's you. not helpful. It's not helpful to think well, how would I deal with it? I might later, but in the moment, it's how is this client? handling this what are they what am i seeing and and really getting some some clinical distance but also being emotionally present saying wow that's really tough so it's a real balancing act it's a balancing act and i think i think it's something that a lot of people in fields that are not therapy don't learn how to do it part of it's even just grounding and and having a neutral face versus 
recognizing that if you frown, if you, you know, if mm-hmm. you mirror too much, that the emotions will become yours. And I can tell you from my experience, that was something I was scanning and probably do still scan constantly mm-hmm. is any facial expression mm-hmm. when I'm sharing something or asking a question yeah. where I'm insecure. Yes. And, and that um, seeing empathy and uh, caring in a moderation on mm-hmm. my therapist's face it, it has been hugely healing. Absolutely. And, I, and I've actually, I think, you know, I, I don't think that you should have a blank face. I think mm-hmm. it's more of a neutral and a soft face. Yes. Because you've had the people, oh, that's so sad. Yeah, I've and, never had know, that. And not I would that they, not want that. Yeah. <laughs> well, not as a therapist, but like other people who, you know, who are just there in it with you, just, you know, you can see all of the emotions on their face and it's clear that they're kind of, it's like they're dragging the emotion and be like, oh, this is now mine. And I think, I think that, that having a soft face, having, having more of a neutral face is important. Now, the reason I, I am continuing with this is I think what you described of scanning and wanting to to kind of be able to read the therapist, I think is something that I've talked to my clients about because I'm not a Freudian blank slate therapist because I don't think it's helpful for people who've had childhood trauma. If you if you don't express any of your own opinions or any of your own emotions, you don't have if you're not a real person, then the other person's kind of stuck guessing, am I okay? Because it's not a fully developed kind of relationship and therapy, the therapist relationship is, is unique, but I think having a, a, a fuller relationship where you know a little bit of who I am within reason and I know who you are and we're interacting as human beings is much better than being completely blank. So there's that again, mm-hmm. that balance of how do I make sure I'm only experiencing my own emotions. I'm being empathic, but I'm also being a human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think for a lot of us, Early in therapy, we're still skeptical. So we're waiting to see the bullshit. And mm-hmm. so if somebody is a blank slate to me, completely blank slate, then I'm not yeah. going to believe anything because I'm going to say, oh, this is just something they learned yeah. to to recite. So just because I want to make sure I answered the question, though, for the, the, the woman who or the man or whoever was in the veterinarian mm-hmm. situation, I think it's recognizing that there's self-care that's required, giving space. If, you know, I think there's probably times it's great to be working in a veterinarian's office you get to lots of animals and all these things and there's the shots and you know Mm. all those things and then there's the times when it's really really hard and recognizing i need to be extra gentle with myself and and being okay to have have had a reaction i think too many too often people who work in the in the medical field and the helping fields they pretend like they have to be impervious to this stuff and that doesn't help anybody because then there's not the support of wow that was a tough day yeah, that it's makes like, sense. oh, can you believe that? You know, like it, it can become into this more, not, not macho, but almost like, let's make it all a joke. Yeah, a little <laughs> dark sense of humor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after spending 18 years in radio, my work has always defined me. Two years ago, my station changed ownership, flipped formats, and laid off 38 people myself, included. Being in mid-management, I took it very hard and felt I'd let my staff down, even though it was beyond my control. Ever since, I just haven't had my mojo and can't get out of my rut. Any suggestions? It, it, to me, it's unclear whether it's their personal, uh, their professional rut or their personal 
guilt about having to lay these people off? And what, what's your take? I mean, I think there's a lot that we don't know about from this question. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll go based on kind of my own assumptions. But I think when you're in the role of a manager, there's a lot of responsibility that you take for the people who work for you. I think if you're a good manager, mm-hmm. that, that there's that that thought that I want to make sure that what I'm doing is going to support these people who are doing the work that needs to be done. And when you're not able to to keep those jobs, and, and I think even personally having a layoff and also having to lay other people off at the same time, that's a trauma. It's, you know, especially if your identity is in the, the role that you've played, if you were, felt responsible for these people who are now having to look for other jobs, there's, there's a big possibility to have trauma because depending on the environment before the layoff and what the layoff meant and all those things, there can be stuff to process there. And I think there's also that piece of if your identity was this and now there's not a chance to be able to do it, how do I redefine myself? How do I find my next iteration? And it can feel really overwhelming. And if you, you know, if you, if you're really tied, to, like for folks who are really tied to their professional persona, I am someone in radio. I am a manager in radio. And you lose that. If you have, if you don't have the other pieces filled in, it can feel like you've just lost yourself completely. You know, mm-hmm. folks who, who have a lot of hobbies and other passion projects and relationships and family members and all those things, you know, I'm not saying that this is always going to protect from that, but there, there's other places to, fo- you know, f- focus your attention on these other relationships on other these things. But if you've been working really hard at your job and you're spending tons of time there and then it's just gone, you have to kind of create a whole life again. And so I think being able to identify, okay, where do I, who am I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do I want to continue forward? What are the things that I liked to do that I can do again? What are the things that I didn't like to do that I don't want to do again? And being able to kind of think through like, what are my next steps can be helpful. If you find something that sparks that excitement, that sparks that mojo and says, you know what? I really want to do that. That would be super exciting. Um, if that's, not possible if it's like, well, I've done all those things and I've taken a million quizzes and I've talked to a ton of people and I just can't find anything or I found something that probably would work and I've sent out applications and I'm just not that excited about it. I think if it's something that there's just the mojo is really not coming back no matter what you try, it may be time to talk to a therapist and say, hey, I think I'm suffering from some depression or I think that there's some anxiety that's come in or I, maybe there's some trauma. Like I can't diagnose this, but I, you know, if there's, if there's not progress being made with kind of purposeful planning and, and exploration, I think it's time to talk to somebody who can help. It sounds like a lot of uh, things are, could, could be put under the umbrella of, you know what, um, maybe get off uh, the couch and stop obsessing about it and talk to somebody mm-hmm. about it. Well, I think people can live in their heads really, really well. Really and well. And I think if... I don't know many people who living in their heads is really a good thing. I think oftentimes there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. There's the the negative, you know, whether it's, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh my... And being really worried. Or if it's... I'm never going to do anything. I'm never going to mount anything. And all those negative messages that maybe you've gotten from different places throughout your life. It can, you sit there, if you're on the couch or you're in your head, that's where it goes. I think being able to have purposeful activity, even if it's something completely unrelated to where you want to end up, just purposeful activity that starts putting a focus somewhere else can be really, really helpful. But being on the couch in your head, not helpful. 
in, in closing, give us just a couple of tips for people who have never really thought about self-care and maybe a couple of suggestions for ways they can ease into uh, doing it or the very least thinking about how to find ways to practice self-care. Okay. I think the first thing is figure out what works for you. I think too many people say, okay, well, I must do yoga because that's what everyone tells me to do, or I need to meditate for 30 minutes a day, and then I also need to make sure that I'm going to the gym, and I'm eating the right foods, and it must be a gluten-dairy-free diet, um, maybe paleo. Like, There's so many suggestions <laughs> that may or may not work for you, so figure out what works. So if it's, I love going outdoors and hiking, that's one for me. And so I say, that's healthy. It gets me some sun. It gets me some exercise. I love being outdoors. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to incorporate going for walks and hiking as my self-care. If people hate going outside, then don't do that. That's not for you. So figure out what type of physical activity it feels good. So there's that part. And then I think it's also looking at making sure that you're getting enough sleep. And that can be different for different people. Some people need 10 hours. Some people need seven. I don't I think most people need more than four, so mm -hmm. we need to get more sleep. Um, making sure that what you're eating is is nutritious, feels good. If that I'm not, I'm not a mm -hmm. <laughs> nutrition uh, or registered dietitian, so I can't speak to that. But I, you know, make sure that the food that you're eating is good. So take care of basic needs. I always say to folks, if you're thinking about self care, think about a baby that hasn't gone to the bathroom, hasn't <laughs> hasn't had hasn't fed hasn't slept that's us inside we just don't you know when we've not had those things we're like the little baby crying on the floor like we need to take care of basic needs and make sure that we're doing it consistently so scheduling meals scheduling sleep time scheduling making sure you have enough water all those things to take care of basic needs mm -hmm. and then i think it really goes to what are the things that feed your soul some people hate yoga some people hate meditation. Some people are more, you know, they like different types of things. Some people, you know, like to do their meditation within their faith practice. And, and there's a lot of different ways to kind of address spiritual self-care. I think some people love time to go spend with a ton of people. Some people would rather have a few close friends and, and more kind of time for solitude. So I think it's figuring out what works for you and putting it in. And, and, and I would say, take note of how your body feels after doing that. Do you feel mm -hmm. more energized than mm -hmm. you did before? That's how I know support groups are good for me, other than my uh, life working out better, is I feel more relaxed and alert and mm -hmm. happy after yeah. I leave there. Absolutely. I think that's good. I think sometimes when you're shifting habits, like if going to the gym is your thing, you may not feel energized afterwards. So if you if you mm -hmm. you're feeling like overall I'm feeling better, so you might want to test some of those things out. But I think yeah. generally, if you're if you're feeling energized, if you're feeling fulfilled, if you're feeling positive, it's something that you need to keep in your schedule. And I think it's making them non negotiable. Yeah. You can you can reschedule, but you cannot cancel. And mm -hmm. rescheduling is not the best because oftentimes it'll just keep being pushed yeah. off. Katie, thank you so much. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way to do that? I, I have my website, which is uh, EvolveToThriveConsulting.com. That's where I work with the, the burnout. I also have a phone number, 424-241-3205, or you can reach me at Katie at EvolveToThriveConsulting.com. Thank you, Katie. Many, many thanks to Katie. Really enjoyed talking to her and uh, would love to have her back on back on the show. Um, 
This episode that you just uh, heard and are still hearing will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. It is very much appreciated. And uh, speaking of helping out the show, uh, one of the things that we can always use in addition to uh, monthly donors, um, etc., cetera, uh, is frequent flyer miles so that I can um, go record non-Americans again like I, like I just did. It's super expensive uh, to travel outside the country, and uh, we don't really have a budget for it, so it would be great if you had frequent flyer miles uh, to donate. Either email me through the website or go to our uh, support the show uh, little drop-down menu, and there's a whole thing about how to donate frequent flyer miles. Just found out that United charges you to transfer frequent flyer miles to somebody else. And it's like the the cost to transfer them is as much as it would be to buy a new ticket. Possibly, possibly even more expensive. It's they are really, really testing their uh, their clientele. Um, which leads me to my next thing, which is I love when corporations have a heart and. Bombas Socks has a heart. Bombas was started when two guys, Randy and Dave, heard that socks were the number one uh, requested clothing item in homeless shelters. So for every pair of socks that Bombas uh, sells, they donate a pair to those in need, which is awesome. Uh, And then this is kind of funny. Uh, Dave promised Randy that he'd get a Bombas logo tattoo when they donated a million pairs of socks. And he thought it'd probably take about 10 years. It took two and a half. Now Dave has a Bombas tattoo uh, and a good story to, uh, to, sh- to share about it. I love a good tattoo story. Um, I always love when you see somebody has a tattoo that says, you know, like, uh, you know, Brad loves Lynn. And you can see he's in the process of having it removed. Oh, you just want to walk by him and go, I guess Lynn was a handful, huh? Uh, anyway, Bomba socks are, are great. I uh, tried a couple of different pairs of them. Uh, I like the ones that are go just above the ankles. They're perfect for wearing with uh, high-top sneakers. Uh, they have a low-profile one that I really like it, that goes great with uh, shoes like Vans and... Uh, they're just, they're well designed. There's, there's no, uh, annoying toe seam. Uh, they don't fall down your leg. There's added arch support. Uh, they've solved pretty much every annoying sock problem imaginable, except for, uh, crushing spiritual loneliness. But that, that actually might not have anything to do with my socks. So for, uh, the best socks in the history of feet, visit bombus.com slash mental. Uh, do it today. You'll get an additional uh, 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash mental for 20% off. Bombas dot com slash mental. And I want to give some love to uh, Blue Apron. I fell in love with Blue Apron when I tried them. Uh, I guess it would have been probably about two years ago, and I've been doing them uh, ever since. Uh, I pay to have... Uh, it every week and it's totally affordable it's less than 10 bucks a meal and uh it's 
delivered right to your door, seasonal recipes with step-by-step instructions, pre-portioned ingredients, and uh, you can even customize your recipes based on your preferences uh, and select a delivery option that uh, works out for you. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Um, some of the meals available in June include warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons, spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice, elote-style vegetable tote elote, am I pronouncing that correctly? E-L-O-T-E, style vegetable tostadas with summer squash, poblano peppers, and cilantro rice, and peach honey-glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil. That one sounds really good. Um, Why do I love Blue Apron? Let me count the ways. I learn cooking skills. I get to taste flavors from around the world. It's a form of self-care. It gets me to slow down and be present uh, in my day. And... uh, I get to eat. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We have some uh, surveys. I think we have, we have, uh, lately I've just only been feeling the, uh, awfulsome, the happy moments, and the, uh, shame and secrets. I don't know why I felt like I needed to take a break from the other ones. Sometimes I get a little, uh, I don't know, burned out is too strong of a word. But just where I need, like, a break from certain, certain things. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if, if you could take a break from yourself? I think that's why they invented comas. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by In the Jungle Melody. And she writes, My boyfriend just informed me uh, that a band that I've been listening to every day to help me with my clinical depression, he just informed me that members of it are racist assholes. That is a bit of a conundrum. You know, what do you do if you like their music, but you don't like their worldview? I mean, like, what if... This is so awful. What if Hitler had come out with, like... If, like, today Hitler was alive and he came out with a really fun app for the iPhone. But you didn't know it was him until you had already gotten addicted to it. Like if you found out right now that Hitler actually invented Candy Crush. I kind of want to go back and rewind that, but I'm not gonna. The the ghost of Herbert spurs me on. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself So Huh. She is... Bisexual. Uh, I identify as straight, but I am bi-curious, which I think counts as bisexual, question mark. Um, That would actually make you bi-curious curious. Oh, we're going down a rabbit hole. She's in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, One, uh, and she reported it. Uh, One, 
and she never reported it, and then also stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. She writes, stuff happened at age 6, 8, 13, 20, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 35. Um, I am so sorry that you... Wow. Uh, She writes, I tried once reporting a psychotherapist who was really inappropriate for four years, um, telling me when he was feeling aroused by our conversation. This is so hard to read because I like to think of this show as a an entertaining or at the very least compelling uh, cheerleader for help, for therapy, for support groups, etc. And when I read something like this, there's a part of me that doesn't want to read it publicly because I'm so afraid somebody out there is going to hear this and go, see, nobody's safe. But I also want people's voices to be heard. So I feel like I should... I should read it and stop trying to fucking rescue the world. Um, anyway, and plus, it just makes me so fucking angry. Um, I thought you didn't get angry, Paul. Anyway, telling me when he was feeling aroused by our conversation, saying he saw me to the door so he could watch me walk down the hall because my long waist gave me a nice ass, telling me about whom he had sexually abused. That is so fucked up reading me private notes written by other clients about their ritualistic abuse. The investigator was really aggressive, and I withdrew my complaint because I was so frightened by how much information she was able to pry from me against my comfort level. I've had other half-assed attempts at reporting, but I would start to say what happened, and I'd be met with a whole level of questioning that made me feel really uncomfortable. Reporting has not been an empowering experience. Even doing an intake form with a psychiatrist about my past sexual trauma isn't an empowering experience. Really? You're going to ask why someone who has been groomed for trauma just took her final college exam after being raped rather than going to the police? Really? You want me to explain why I wouldn't submit for a rape exam if I wasn't even going to submit for a routine pap smear? Shit. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm so sorry on behalf of humanity that not only did you have to experience all of this abuse, but then the very people who are supposed to help you abuse you again. And uh, what a sick fuck that uh, therapist is. Oh, my. I try to not be judgmental, but... um, when people in those types of positions of authority um, which would include parents anyway she's been physically abused emotionally abused she writes my mom threatened to kill herself in my presence from about the time I was six when we argued she threatened to kill my pets or put me in foster care so I would quote be raped every day I ran away to therapy and she made me quit and threatened to sue the therapist because I was a minor. She threw things. She screamed. My dad bruised her up. I was publicly spanked far past puberty with my pants and underwear forcefully pulled off. It sounds pretty stupid, 
but I had a brother seven to eight years older who terrorized me daily, popping out behind corners, really aggressive and unwanted pinning and tickling, being stalked in my own home, never feeling physically safe, never figuring out how to get away from him or out from under him when he was spitting on me or making me pee my pants. It haunted my nightmares as a child. No one ever fixed it. I felt powerless over my own body and unsafe in my own home every day. Pretty dumb, but I think I'm really sensitive. I wish I would have figured out a way to outsmart him, but he was really smart, too, and over twice my age. It is not dumb, and it really sucks that that you were raised in a home where you're blaming yourself for being sensitive, where you're worried that these things aren't a big deal and that you should be able to handle them better. I mean, who, who could handle that? I think even a robot would snap. Uh, any positive experiences? Yes, I don't want to ruin anyone's job or life or anything. I'm not really sure what that means. Uh, it sounds like she's trying to, uh, have that balance out whether or not she's going to report somebody? I don't know. Darkest thoughts, killing my disabled child so that he doesn't have to be vulnerable and risk being abused, then killing myself. Uh, darkest secrets, I engaged in medical BDSM role play when I was eight. It makes it so I can never run for public office or anything like that because it's so weird. I don't understand why that would... Uh, first of all, if you made everybody in politics that had a fetish get out of politics, uh, there'd be tumbleweeds blowing through uh, government buildings. Uh, let's see. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I like medical BDSM fantasies. Uh, how does that make me feel? Sharing that here, I feel nothing. Sort of, nah. Judge me all you want, fuckers. Uh, I am not judging you. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I don't know that I have anything I need to say to anyone. I'm really bad at fantasizing about other people's future reactions. I just, I don't know. I have nothing to say. What do you wish for? Peace, understanding, support, and validation. Have you shared these things with others? I don't think people get it. I'm sort of impossible to understand. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little sad. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You too? Sucks, huh? Yeah. Um, you are not impossible to understand to me, and I'm going to venture a guess the majority of our listeners. Um, and I hope, I hope that you can stop judging yourself and understand that anybody who experienced the horror and the betrayal of trust you have experienced time and time again, anybody would be struggling with those feelings. And fuck anybody that judges your sexual fantasies if you're doing it with uh, a consenting partner. Um... I, I'm, I have a nurse thing, and I, I don't think, is that a, uh, 
No, because it's not BDSM, but it is a medical thing. I think a lot of people uh, have a, a thing for nurses. I'd be interested to know how many people who have nurse fantasies, like a nurse caring for them and then it becoming sexual, I wonder how many people um, that have that had a really cold um, mother or at the very least a mother that was uh, inconsistent in her um, warmth or whatever you want to call it. Because I'm pretty sure I know where mine comes from because really the first time I remember feeling seen and taken care of in a moment of real, real need was in the hospital, uh, recovering from an operation uh, on my testicles when I was like 11, and I was so embarrassed. And I've shared this before on the on the podcast, but this this nurse would come in. I just remember she was from Philadelphia. I don't remember her name, but she made me feel so special and so normal. Um, and she would come in and she would sing songs, but she would insert my name into it, and it just. It's the closest thing I think I've ever experienced to what a normal mother-son um, affection must must feel like. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Chelsea, and she writes, and I love this one because it's so simple, but it's like the bedrock of recovery. Uh, little things like this. And she writes, looking down at my freshly painted toenails, feeling full of helpfulness due to finally showing some self-care. I mean, that is the way, that is the way forward. You know, washing the bedding when it starts to smell. It seems like common sense to the average person, but to those of us that battle depression or lots of other things, it can be like... So hard, so hard. I'm just going to read part of this one. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a a trans female uh, who calls herself Years of Entropy. And um, she is pansexual in her 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, and uh, really narcissistic parents, uh, abusive on all levels. except sexual abuse. Um, Darkest thoughts. I have OCD and I get these persistent unwanted thoughts that are really intrusive. Like I was at a bus stop in the rain the other day and this crackhead girl started a fight with me and these thoughts come from threats and I imagined her attacking me. This type of thing always triggers and back and forth uh, in my mind uh, a move, counter move, where it becomes extremely violent and bloody, and I always die. I imagined her kicking me out into the street and being hit by a car. Then I think of catching her foot and throwing her down and kicking her neck, but then I realize I wouldn't see her foot coming, but maybe could grab her jacket as I fell, and we'd both end up in the street. Maybe the drag of her weight would make us fall on the sidewalk, but she would be on top of me, punching, ripping, and scratching as I try to gouge out her eyes, but she manages to maul my face and strangle me, both of us a bloody mess. I die in the street. Then I shake my head and uh, come back to reality and walk around 
the side of the overhang and stand in the rain as she calls me a faggot and gloats about her victory. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That, that, um, the onslaught that, that people in the trans community experience every day is so much worse than you could ever imagine. Uh, darkest secrets. When I was a kid, I used to masturbate by fingering my butt. I was also obsessed with the difference in genitals between my cousin and I. It wasn't sexual, really, just that it was different. I remember pressing my face against her underwear to smell her vagina when we were little, not aware of how I was violating her. My aunt set me straight, and I feel horrible about it to this day. I pretend that she doesn't remember, but I do, and we are the same age. When I hear people write into this show about similar experiences and hearing their reactions, it breaks my heart. Maybe it's not the end of the world, but it's not nothing. Thankfully, after my recent suicide attempt, she has been one of three family members to be supportive and not guilt me. She calls me a few times a week to just check in, and we laugh about stuff, which is rare since my attempt. Side note, don't guilt people who have attempted suicide or suggest that they are manipulative. Fuck you, Dad. Um, it sounds like you have a beautiful relationship with your cousin and you were children. You were children. You, you know, I would file what happened there under experimentation. That was not abusive. That was not abusive. And if it's still bothering you, bring it up with your with your cousin and clear the air. But let your cousin love you. You are denying your... You, you. The best way to love your cousin is to let her love you. That's what I was trying to say. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It used to be that I wanted to be dominated and humiliated by a well-endowed trans woman, but since being on hormones, I just dream of being a woman with a loving partner with a healthy sexual relationship. Ha ha. It might sound really normal, but after two years of gradual abandonment by friends, family, and my ex, I feel like I'll be alone forever. It makes me happy to not dwell on humiliation, but sad at how much of a fantasy a healthy relationship seems anymore. You know, I couldn't help but think as I was reading this that if you transpose this back X number of years, that would those would be the words coming out of somebody's mouth um, about being gay. And while there's still a tremendous mountain to climb for people who are uh, gay or lesbian, um, or anywhere on the on the queer spectrum, I couldn't help but think of the progress society has made in accepting them, and hope that that is in store, and that you don't give up hope. Because you sound like a really really sweet soul and we need sweet souls we need sweet souls this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself big red meat and he writes years ago my brother had moved to seattle without mentioning it to me and when he was traveling through our city i didn't 
uh, I lived in, he didn't stop in to say goodbye. I was rather hurt by this, mentioned it to him, and damaged our relationship. This spring, he was traveling through and stopped by on his way back to Seattle. I thought he was staying a few days since he had been driving all night and taking a nap. I was in my room masturbating. He barged in without knocking, which my family seems to do, and informed me he was leaving to go back. He went in to give me a hug, and instead of stopping, I looked him in the eyes and kept stroking. We didn't speak for a few months. Awfulsome. Uh, I will. I would not be surprised to have your brother uh, fill out a survey. Uh, and what would he call it? I really should have knocked, but what the fuck? I, I'm curious as to know what your intent was. Um, because uh, I don't know. There, there's part of me wants to find that funny, and part of me um, doesn't find that funny, finds it, like, really aggressive. Uh, But I don't know your relationship with your brother, and uh, I don't know why I'm adding all this. But I hope it doesn't feel like I'm judging you. I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to uh, file it away in my head. This is a happy moment filled out by... uh, an agender person who calls themselves uh, vomit in the street and their happy moment crying in bed with my eyes closed. After a while, I feel my cat press her snout to my eye and hold it there for a few seconds. I thought, this is what support and love feel like. Why can't people do this? That one touched me so much and I think especially because that's what Herbert would do. Herbert would come up on the bed or if you were sitting in a chair and he wanted to be petted or when you were on the ground with him he would he loved to be um we had a word for it we would we would call it bridging because he would like if you were on all fours on the ground he would pass underneath you like you were a bridge and he loved to then take his head and just kind of hold it against parts of your body or if you're kissing him against your face. And that was like one of my favorite, favorite things about about Herbert. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, the slightly less fucked up twin. And she writes, my sister and I grew up, in, or my sisters and I grew up in a war zone, mentally, physically sexually abused and neglected. Because of that, we have a connection and bond that's virtually indestructible. My identical twin struggles with heroin addiction and has burned every bridge but ours, uh, hers and mine. Even our big sister had to step away to save herself. I don't blame her. I stayed because of the, quote, twin thing wouldn't let me save myself. Imagine empathy magnifying to the point of codependency and then multiply that by a fuck ton. Fast forward through years of absolute hell, crippling fear, and anxiety on my part. Countless abscesses, infections, overdoses, and Section 36s on hers. Today, I visited my twin and not seeing her for months. She is in recovery. Her eyes were beautiful and bright. Her skin was glowing. She put on a few healthy pounds and she smiled. Genuine smiles. Just the other day, my big sister answered the phone and talked with my twin again. They hadn't spoken in months. 
Today, Big Sis and I reminisced about the time my twin's fingers were swollen from a new med and she couldn't get a ring off. We spent an hour on the floor. We had spent an hour on the floor laughing to the point of tears, covered in every kind of oily or slippery liquid we could get our hands on, trying to pull this damn ring off. That moment was so organic and innocent. I love my sisters. I love them so much. That's a beautiful thing. People who have good relationships with family members, do not take it for granted. Do not take that love and closeness and laughter for granted. This is a Shame and Secrets survey filled out by Layla, or Lila, L-A-I-L-A. She has, uh, she's bisexual in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. And you're thinking, well, why is she filling this out? Uh, I'm not, but maybe you are. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes when my husband doesn't answer my texts or calls for a long period of time, I have this fantasy that maybe he was involved in an awful accident and was killed. Sometimes this brings me relief because it would set me free of being burdened down by his depression and the constant struggle to try to, quote, fix him. I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to try to not fix him and to just listen to him and hug him, remind him you love him, ask him if there's anything to do. And if you need breaks from it, say, you know, I just need a little break. I love you. I'm not I'm not leaving, but I just uh, need some, some time to recharge my battery. That might help. Um, in fact, you just heard an entire episode about it. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I'm a 30-year-old female identifying as, quote, straight to most people, except my husband and a few close friends. I feel so guilty about watching drunk college girl porn, but it turns me on so much. I work at a child advocacy center, and it is my day job to advocate against rape culture, which drunk girl videotaped sex, uh, in parentheses, think girls gone wild, definitely falls into. I imagine that these girls are likely straight, but have their inhibitions lowered by alcohol, and it makes me angered that I get so turned on despite knowing that these girls have been taken advantage of. However, this is a situation that I fantasize inserting myself into over and over. I think it's because I also consider myself, quote, relationship straight, but sexually bi, and so I sort of identify with these girls. Um, you know, my thought is, is what we have shared many times on this podcast, which is if you're not hurting somebody in real life, um, or contributing to some type of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, if you are not harming society by what you're doing, it, if, if it is just you and your vagina, forgive yourself. Embrace what turns you on or, you know, talk to somebody about it, a, a therapist. But I personally... Don't think anything is wrong with you. There are tons of people who identify as feminists that have um, fantasies about uh, uh, rape, uh, etc. And none of it means that they want it to happen in real life. And as we've shared many times on the podcast, there's a book by Jack Morin called um, The Sexual... The fuck is the name of it? But anyways, he studied people's fantasies and he 
came up with this theory that it's actually because you're morally opposed to it that it becomes a turn-on. So in reality, it's proof that you're not bullshitting about this, which isn't to say that every person who is morally opposed to something is turned on by it, but it is a thing that happens. It is a thing that happens, and it has nothing to do with your character. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be in a relationship that brings me joy, happiness, and love. I'm only 30 and just can't stand being in a loveless marriage for the rest of my life, but I'm also too much of a wimp to leave and start over. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I've shared this with my husband on multiple occasions, but then we ended up doing nothing about it and continuing our lives as they stand. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm crying. Well, I want to send you some love and a hug and encourage you to keep advocating for yourself and think about your needs and what it is that you want and um, want, wanting to um, being in a relationship that doesn't bring you joy, happiness, or love, um, but being afraid to leave and start over, that's a very fruitful topic to head to therapy or back to couples counseling for. Um, I personally think individual therapy. Uh, sounds like you did group therapy or uh, couples therapy with your husband, but it might be really good for you to find a place to just let loose on your own and start to unpack all those layers in your head that tell you, oh, you, you can't do that. You can't think this. You're a bad person if you want that. I, I am going to venture a guess that there was some type of, that it was not safe for you to have certain opinions um, or feelings in your family growing up. It, it wasn't encouraged. This is filled out by Smiley Face. It's a happy moment, and she's 15, and she writes, Today my therapist said, I've made enough progress that I don't need to see her over the summer! Exclamation point. I'm really glad that I've made steps in coping with my mental issues, and I'm proud of the work I have done and the shit that I have conquered. That, can't even tell you how much that fires me up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lost in Seattle. And he is um, bisexual in his 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, one mom, seven kids, and a mobile home. That sounds like the title of a really awful viral video. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was seven years old, a friend of my brother took me into the woods and had me give him head. He was 13. Yes, that is sexual abuse. Um, while it's true that that guy was also a kid, what you experienced is straight-up sexual abuse. And what was going on with that kid is a separate 
issue. Anyway, continuing, at the time, I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't know that someone could get pleasure from their genitals. I just did what he said because I wasn't in a position to deny him. Part of me feels angry about the incident. The smug teenage kid created sexual confusion in me that would mutate into deeper trauma as I grow older. The other part of me is way too tired to give a fuck. Um, I, I would probably bet too that the the part of you that is tired is actually depressed because it's so much easier to just keep this pushed down than to be battling that anger every day. Uh, he's been physically and emotionally abused. When I was five, I was present for the fight that led to my parents' divorce. They fought right in the other room, yelling at the top of their lungs. When it was all over, I screamed for my father to come back as he jumped in his car and abandoned me for the next year. My borderline personality disorder starts here. My brother took steroids and got big in high school. I was the fifth grader he took his rage out on. Bruises the size of NFL footballs, Paul. I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, my brother is my brother. Darkest thoughts. My sister deals with heroin addiction and is constantly off it and on it. I think all the time about how much I want to shoot up with her. Darkest secrets. Craigslist casual encounters. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like being dominated by women. When I was two, my cute blonde neighbor, who was three, pushed me down onto the cement while we were playing on the speed bump between our houses. Uh, it is my fantasy to locate her and be dominated for the final time. I imagine she will end up killing me. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my first love how sorry I was for taking advantage of our relationship. What, if anything, do you wish for? Homework. It sounds stupid, but I miss having to do homework since I dropped out of college. Um, it filled so much of my time, and now I struggle to find things to fill my time. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. Tidbits here and there. I've never felt very comfortable sharing my personal problems with others, even my parents. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better, a little worse, definitely more tired. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just fill your time with something constructive. I can seem to do it, though. Sorry. Um, your, your survey moved me. Uh, so so much and as I was reading it I was thinking it would be so great for you to connect to people who can relate to your experience and there are tons of people who can relate to your experience but you're not going to probably bump into them crossing the street or riding the bus it's probably going to take group therapy or a support group but I think it could really really help you and the people who do really well in support groups are the ones that make it a pillar in their life and do the work involved in it work like journaling um, 
you know, self-reflection, writing, um, helping mentor other people in the program. And the reason I mention this is you miss doing homework. You could kill two birds with one stone. You could tap into your love of doing assignments and the benefit of being in a support group. And you would experience the full benefit of support groups because support groups are best utilized when you go to them consistently, you let people in there get to know you, you get vulnerable. Some people you'll find you don't want to let them uh, get too close to you. So there's certain things that you'll only share with people that you've gotten to know and trust in the group. Um, Some friendships will come and go, but in there, you will feel understood and you deserve that. And I would maybe consider contacting the Rape and Incest National Network um, because what you experienced when you were seven is trauma. That's sexual trauma. Not to mention all the shit that happened in your family and your dad peeling out. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Stranger in a Strange Land. And he writes, My brother and his fiance were planning their wedding. My sister-in-law, uh, especially, let's call her Ruby, had seen how my mother had effectively taken over the wedding planning for my wife and I when we got married. Every issue turned into a fight. Every good idea had to be hers, and it even escalated to the point that my mother called our seven-year-old flower girl a bitch for her dress. Well, our wedding has since passed, and now that Ruby and my brother are planning their wedding, Ruby had gotten wise to my mother's tricks. She shut down my mom whenever she tried to butt into the planning. This was causing no end of drama. One time, my brother had to field a call from my mom. She was trying to do an end run around Ruby. Fortunately, they had a unified front, and he politely shut her suggestions down one at a time. When my mother started dissolving into histrionics, my brother fired right back. Mom, what are you hoping to do here? You are not planning the wedding. This is our special day, not yours. And this is this what you did to um, such and such and his wife? Is that why they don't talk to you anymore? You don't have to come to the wedding, and if you keep this shit up, you won't. When I heard that story, I was grinning from ear to ear. Not only had my brother developed his spine in spite of our upbringing, he stood by Ruby, pointed out my mother's unacceptable behavior, and validated all that my wife and I had been through with my mom. I love the man that my brother has become, but it was a tough battle for both of us to fight. Side note, my mother views each of the two couples in opposite ways. In my marriage, my wife is, a good, is the good one, and everything that goes wrong with us is my fault. In my brother's marriage, he is the good one, and everything that goes wrong is Ruby's fault. It is awful to have a mother who so clearly plays favorites and has to control everything, but awesome to see her called out on her manipulative ways by her golden child. That was a great one. Thank you for that. And that, that, you know, that to me is like the, you know, the one I read of the, uh, the 15 year old girl whose therapist told her how how well she was doing 
it's like this is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put all the effort that I do into support groups and doing this show and going to therapy and talking on the phone with friends if this shit didn't work. Because deep down, uh, I don't like to, <laughs> I don't like to waste my time. If, if I think I'm going to fail at something or it might not work out, my instinct is to just go play Civilization for seven hours and not think about it. My point being, there's no doubt in my mind this stuff works. Unfortunately, it's never immediate, it's never linear, and it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, but the journey is fucking beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. I'm going to end with this one. It's an awfulsome moment filled out by Dribble Without a Cause. And she writes, I was at the bus stop running late for a mental health evaluation that had been set up the day before, set up the day before, after a series of events involving me scream-threatening suicide so loud that it echoed up and down our block, the police being called, and methamphetamine. Now, it was a very sunny day, and I tried my best to enjoy the moment as I waited for the bus. I noticed a homeless man on a bench feeding a duck, and my delight quickly turned to worry as I remembered that ducks mate for life, and this adult female would surely have a male in tow. I turned to look across the busy I looked across the busy two-lane street to see a cautious male duck stepping out into the road. I ran into the street. He was across one lane, so I knew I could alert the driver barreling towards me without getting hurt. And hey, I tried to kill myself yesterday, so what's one bro in a BMW? The car stopped, and I waved thank you. But ducks are small and slow, so the driver assumed I was a crazy person and honked. I loudly said, it's a duck. I was trying to help him cross the road. I turned to see the duck hop over the curb to safety and the annoyed driver apparently not sharing my overwhelmed sense of relief and joy honked his horn a second time. Maybe it was the meth withdrawal, the trauma of having strangers come to my home to make me go have another stranger tell me if I'm crazy or not, or I just really love ducks, but my rage overflowed onto the bro and the BMW. I put both middle fingers up and approached his car, screaming, It's a fucking duck, asshole. You would murder innocent animals just to get to work on time, you piece of shit. The driver honked more and drove around me. I walked back to the bus stop where 20 or so people were now staring at me. Even the bum, who was still feeding the now happily reunited duck couple, was giving me a look. I noticed that he was feeding them donut holes. I said, that car didn't kill him, but diabetes might. No one laughed at my joke. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Uh, there is something, especially to comedians, so glorious about a joke falling flat. A good joke falling flat. Because that was a good joke. And, uh, oh, Thank you guys for your surveys. Thank you for your support. I hope you heard something in our episode that helped you, inspired you, comforted you, 
put you to sleep. Some people do listen to this to uh, help fall asleep. I guess it comforts them. You are getting very sleepy. But I hope you got something out of it. Um, And never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely